Hello, this is Peggy Joyce Ruth. Welcome to our podcast and hope you enjoy this teaching. Calling this God revealed in Christ. Now the big question in the hearts of so many Christians is, does God send evil? Does he send sickness on people? And then when we get that settled and we realize, no, God does not send evil. He doesn't send the sickness. Then the question comes up, does he allow it in his permissive will? In other words, does God give Satan permission to bring evil on us, to teach us something, or maybe sometime to punish us? Does he allow Satan to do that? Now, a lot of people who do not believe that God sends it will definitely believe that God permits it. Now, these are questions that we have to have settled correctly in our heart and in our mind, or it'll trip us up at every turn. Now, I truly believe that this Bible study is going to settle that question and this is a message that the essence of this lesson I've preached many times because it just burns in my heart. Now back in the book of Jeremiah, God prophesied that he was going to reveal himself. He was going to reveal his true character under the new covenant. He never said that he would reveal his true character under the old covenant, but he promised to do that under the new covenant. And I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter eight. Now the writer of Hebrews quotes from this prophecy that was given through Jeremiah hundreds of years before. And so in Hebrews chapter eight, starting with verse six, it says, now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant enacted on better promises. Okay, he's promising a new and better covenant. And then down in verse 10, he describes that new covenant. He said, for this is the covenant that I'm going to make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I'm going to put my law in their minds. I'm going to write it on their hearts. In the new covenant, now it's not a law out It's not something external, but it's something on the inside of us that we know where we can know our God. And he said, I'm going to write it on their hearts and I'm going to be their God and they'll be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord. Now, to really understand what the Word of God says, we have to look some of these verses up. We have to look some of the words up. And that word know, K-N-O-W there, is to have an acquaintance with. He says, they're not going to teach everyone under this new covenant to know his brother, to have an acquaintance with his God. But he said, then all will know me. There's another K-N-O-W, but it's a different Greek word. When you look that Greek word up, no, he said, then that one means they're going to experience me. They're going to discern me clearly. And it even goes on to say, they are going to look at me and gaze upon me with wide open eyes as though gazing at something remarkable. That is what he's promised us under the new covenant, that we're going to be able to look at him and understand him, discern him clearly, experience him. And don't we gaze at the Lord now and understand God and gaze at him with wide open eyes as though gazing at something remarkable? Because truly, how remarkable the Lord is. And he said, all are going to know me from the least to the greatest under this new covenant. So God made it very clear in this prophecy that the majority of the people under the old covenant really didn't know him. They had an acquaintance with him. They had a head knowledge. They knew that they were supposed to keep certain laws, but they didn't know him intimately. But you know what? Under that new covenant, he said, I'm giving them something entirely different. 
And I've shared this before, but several years ago, the head of the theology department at Howard Payne University made this statement. He said, under the old covenant, the Hebrew mind knew only one power. So anything that was supernatural, they gave God credit for it. If it was supernaturally good, they gave God credit. If it was supernaturally bad, they gave God credit. And you know, one of the professors at Regent, Pat Robertson's university, he, theology department, he's teaching the same thing. And he's even written a book about it. Well, you know, God didn't change characters between the Old and New Testament. God said, I, the Lord God, change not. And many people get confused because it appears between the Old and the New Testament that God changed characters. It appears that it's contradicting itself many times. But you know what? God explained that so clearly. You know, he very clearly said, under the old covenant, they didn't have a very good understanding of me. But he lets it know that that's going to change. Under the new covenant, they're going to understand me. It's not that God changes. It's that they're going to understand about him. And so from the beginning, God had given a progressive revelation all through the Old Testament. You can see the progression of the revelation that they start having of God. And through the years, man has come to know just a little more and a little more about God. And as time goes on, the time finally came when God promised under the Old Covenant, clear in Jeremiah's time, He said, okay, now the time's going to come when you're not going to just know a little bit about me. You're not going to just have a splattering of knowledge. But he said, the time's going to come under that new covenant that you're going to discern me clearly. Okay, and how did God allow people to discern him clearly under the new covenant? Well, it was through his son. He said, this is my beloved son. Hear him. He said, listen to him if you want to know about me. Jesus came to show us the Father. And that's why he said, I and the Father are one. That's why John 14, verse 7 said, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've already seen the Father. See, God was revealing his true character through Jesus Christ. Okay, I want you to look back at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, he said, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways. He said, in the Old Testament, God spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, talking about Jesus, is the radiance of his glory. He is the exact representation of the Father. Okay, he's the exact replica of the Father. So no wonder Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the exact replica of the Father. And that's why we can know exactly what God is like now. See, because we know what Jesus is like. We can look in the Gospels. We know exactly what he's like. What did Jesus do? When you see what Jesus did, you have a perfect picture of what the Father does. Okay, I want you to look in John 1, verse 17. John 1, 17 and 18. You need to mark these two scriptures very clearly in the Word. This will help you so much if you'll memorize these. It says, for the law was given through Moses. What was realized through Jesus? Grace and truth were realized through Jesus. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, or Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Okay, the truth is revealed in Jesus. 
Now, the Old Testament paints a pretty bad picture of God in places where he's given credit for sending all these calamities and these horrible things. But you know what? John 1, 17 and 18 tells us that the truth is finally realized in Jesus Christ. See, no one has seen the Father. No one had seen the Father. But he said, I've sent the Son. He has seen me, and he has come to explain me, God said. We need to look at the life of Jesus. Now, not long ago, I heard a speaker that pulled a scripture out of the book of Job. And she said, Satan cannot do one thing without first going to God and getting his permission. She said, no matter what happens to you, no matter how bad it is, he had to go and get permission from God first. And I sat there in just total, absolute unbelief. And I thought, you know, what a misconception of the character of God. And it was everything I could do. I bit my lip just to keep from crying. It was everything I could do. See, in the first place, Job was under an ancient covenant. And we're never to go back to an ancient covenant to base our theology or to base our picture of God. He never tells us to do that. And especially to solely pull one scripture out of the old covenant and base our theology on that. See, we could prove anything we wanted to prove, really, by pulling one scripture out of the Old Testament. Anyone could do that. It was all I could do to keep from crying, and the reason is because there were about 2,000 young women there who were going to go home thinking that every bad thing that ever happens to me, God gave permission for it. God said, it's okay, do whatever you have to do to them. And it just broke my heart. And I thought, no wonder there are so many people that have such a wrong understanding of God when they're going to learn and then they have that spoken to them. And the next day, a, a lot was said about how wonderful it was. And I thought, oh, God, help us to be able to see you clearly. You've given us the picture through Jesus. Now, now help us to go there instead of basing our theology every place else in the world. And I thought, this is such a misconception that's being put into the hearts of people. Now, when we don't go where he's told us to go to learn about his true character then we're not doing what he's told us to do. He said Jesus came to reveal the truth about the Father. Jesus has come, he said, to explain the Father. They didn't have a good understanding of God's character under the Old Covenant. But Jesus explained the Father. He is the total explanation of God. And Jesus, who is the total truth about God, tells us in John 10, verse 10, that it's the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. You know, the Old Testament didn't have a revelation about Satan. In fact, when Jesus came and first started revealing all these things about the enemy, it was a total revolutionary thought. Satan had never really been exposed before. So God got credit for that evil in the Old Testament simply because the truth had not yet been revealed in Jesus. He had not yet come and crushed the enemy's head and, and taken the authority back. Now, victory over Satan had not yet been won in the Old Testament. Their only protection from the enemy was staying close to God and keeping the law. Now, Satan was virtually hidden throughout the Old Testament. In fact, he's only mentioned by name in the whole Old Testament maybe two or three times. And so you can see many times when you're reading, you can see the confusion in the hearts and minds of the writers in the Old Testament. Now, I could give you a lot of examples but because we don't have the time for that, I'm just going to give you one example to show you what I'm talking about. But God had told David not to number the people. 
He had made it very specific. He wanted David to trust in him. He didn't want him to trust in his military strength. And so he told him, don't number the people. Okay, I want you to look in 2 Samuel chapter 24, 1. I'm going to give you two scriptures that will show you what I'm talking about. In 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, David's been told not to number the people, but it says the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and incited David against them and said, go number Israel and Judah. Okay, now this scripture says that it was God that incited David, told him go number Israel. Now that's confusing if you don't know the character of God. And you think, why would God tell him not to number the people and then turn right around and tempt him to do it? Well, the answer is right in the Word of God if we'll just look for it. Okay, the exact same story now is recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. If you'll look in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, same exact story. It says, Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Now, even though Satan is virtually hidden throughout the Old Testament, we're going to find now that the writer of Chronicles got a glimpse of the truth, and he was able to reveal that it was indeed Satan who had incited David to go and do that. Now, God never said that the people under the Old Covenant were going to know him intimately and understand and discern him clearly. He never said that the ones under the Old Covenant would know his character. He very plainly said that it was going to be under the New Covenant that the people were going to be able to discern him clearly. And it was only under the New Testament now that Jesus began to teach his disciples to be able to distinguish between the things that Satan did and the things that God did, between the works of the enemy and the works of God. Now, Jesus taught how to discern, and he really gave us a formula there in John 10, 10. You can draw a line right down the page, and you can put kill, steal, and destroy on one side, and life and life abundant on the other side, and you literally can categorize every single thing that happens to you. That was what Jesus told us to do. Now, just that scripture alone should settle any questions that we have in our mind that come up concerning where evil comes from. God says, just look at the life of Jesus. He couldn't have put it any more simply than that. He said, we're the same, and we know that evil never came from Jesus, only good. In fact, later you can look up James 1.13. But in James 1.13, it says, let no one say when he's being tempted, that word in the Greek is pierzo, and that word can either be used in the evil sense or it can be used in the good sense. In the evil sense, that word means tempted, tested, tried. In the good sense, it means proved. But he said, let, it's being used in the evil sense right here in this James 1.13. But he said, let no one say when he's being tempted, tested, tried, that I'm being tempted, tested, and tried by God. For God cannot be tempted, tested, or tried by evil. It's being used in the evil sense. And he himself does not tempt, test, or try any man. Okay, now he proves us. And he will do it in the good sense, in the positive sense. God proves us, and that word means to prove with the expectation of approval. In other words, God has his ways of proving our faith, but it's always with the expectation of approval. And then down in verse 17, James 1:17, it says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father, and he says there's no variation. There's no shifting shadows. In other words, he doesn't send a good gift one time and a bad gift the next time. 
He sends good and perfect gifts from the Father. And when we see that, then it allows us to know the kind of character of God that we have because we see it in the life of Jesus. But there's still then the question that crops up, and I've had so many people say, well, I'm convinced, I see the scriptures, I'm convinced that God's not the one sending evil. That's pretty obvious. But he must be allowing it. It must be in his permissive will because after all, God is all-powerful. Well, you can look from cover to cover and you're never going to find God's permissive will. Now, we've come up with that many times in our theology, but God doesn't have a permissive will. Things that happen are either in God's will or they are outside of God's will. They're either in his will or out of his will. There's no in between. And you say, well, if something bad happens to me, God is bound to have allowed it to happen or it couldn't have happened. You know what? That's not true. God gave man a free will. He gave us a choice. He gave man authority on this earth. Therefore, a lot of things that happen on this earth are outside of God's will. And that's why he tells us in the Lord's Prayer, pray thy will, O Lord, that's being done in heaven, come to earth. And God's wanting us to pray that. Father, I'm asking that your will be done right here on earth just like it's being done in heaven. Now, his perfect will is being done in heaven, and we're to pray that. But some of the things happening on this earth are outside his will, not because he sends it, not because he permits it. It's because man has permitted it. You know, he gave man free will and authority, and that's why I want you to follow with me carefully as I show the, you these scriptures, because I think if you'll hear this, you'll never be confused again or tempted to think that it's God permitting bad things that come into your life. See, God gave man authority on this earth. Man sinned. When he did, he gave his authority over to Satan, making Satan the God of this world. And then Satan had the legal right to afflict mankind. He had a legal right from that point on. And it was man who gave him that right. It wasn't God. It wasn't God's permission. It was man's permission. Now, the only protection that man had under the old covenant was in keeping the law. And his only hope to stay out from under the curse was to stay up close to God. And that was the case until Jesus came and paid the death penalty. Now, once Christ came and paid the death penalty, then legally he had paid the debt and he redeemed us from the curse. But you know what? Satan's lease on this earth is not quite up yet. Now, once we belong to Jesus, we have a blood covering of protection. We have that protection. It's like a big umbrella. And Satan can't destroy us when we're under that protection. But you know what? Sin will move us out from under that protection and sin puts us back into the enemy territory. And when that happens, Satan once again has a legal right then to afflict us. Now, when we sin, it's not God getting angry with us and kicking us out into the enemy territory. We do that to ourselves. It's our choice. God gets mad at sin, all right, but it's because he knows that that's going to make us vulnerable to the enemy attacks. He knows that. Now, there are sins of the flesh. There's stealing and adultery and murder and fornication, and we could just name on and on the sins of the flesh. Every one of those will put us in enemy territory if we stay in that, and it gives Satan a legal right. There's also the sins of the soulish realm, where we doubt God's word, where we lie, where we get into bitterness, or where we get into unforgiveness, or where we get into hate. And this old business of our thinking that 
We can just mark somebody off and dislike certain people because they irritate us. That's not gonna cut it, that's sin. And it doesn't mean that we have to run with everybody if our personalities don't run together, but we don't have that right to dislike people. See, God has given us everything summed up in two commandments. That we're to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're to love our neighbor. And so much of the sickness and the bad things that happen come from bitterness toward people and unforgiveness and little pet peeves that we have that causes us to mark people off. But we're told to be holy as God is holy, and it's possible our God wouldn't have told us that. Now, Christianity is not a bunch of rules and regulations and do's and don'ts and thou shalt nots. Instead, Christianity is loving the person of Jesus so much that we keep those commandments because we love him so much that we don't want to break his heart. It would break our heart to do something against him. See, where we're living right and living holy simply because we love God so much that we want to bring the joy to him that it brings to him when we are obedient. Now, some people say, well, it's impossible not to sin. Well, that's true. But we can live a holy life. We can walk up close to the Holy Spirit so that the moment that we find ourselves in sin, boy, I tell you what, you'll be nudged by the Holy Spirit. You'll know it. And that's the moment that we need to turn. We need to repent. And that's why 1 John 1 verse 9 tells us that if we confess, in other words, if we repent, then it says he is faithful. He's faithful every time to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so he's given us that. You know, I think what a wonderful, loving father that loves us and gives us all these wonderful things. Let Jesus come and take the curse for us. And then knowing that we're going to fall on our face again, but knowing that he's going to be willing to forgive us and cleanse us every single time. And that's why the message on repentance is so important. That's why repentance was the very first words out of John the Baptist's mouth. It was the first words out of Jesus' mouth because sin opens the door to the world and puts us out in enemy territory. And God doesn't put us out there, sin does. But you know, this is what I'm wanting you to hear. By looking at the life of Jesus, we can know that God didn't say, I'm angry with you because you're in sin, so I'm gonna pull my protection off of you. It's not that. Or I'm gonna send evil on you, or I'm going to send sickness on you, or even allow it. By looking at the life of Jesus, we can know that we don't find that in the life of Jesus. He's the exact replica of the Father. And the reason that God is so insistent that we repent and live a holy life is not because he's going to do us in or allow Satan to do us in. It's the reason that God is so insistent that we repent is because he knows that gives Satan a legal right. Sin gives Satan a legal right. And he wants us to be protected. He loves us that much. Now, when we're in willful sin, we've just stepped out from under God's protective covering and we've stepped into enemy territory. Because like I said, he's still the God of this world. And that's why we need to keep ourselves out of the world. But it's not God giving permission. Satan already has permission when we get in his territory. He already has it. He doesn't have to be given permission. And God wasn't the one giving it to him, man did. Now, sickness and every bad repercussion or the consequences come from sin in one of three places. It's either going to come from the sin of our own personal sin, or it can be the ancestral sin handed down in the bloodline through a curse, which by the way can be broken through Jesus, or it is sin in the world, it's universal sin. 
And I'm going to tell you what, a lot of times we don't realize that that universal sin can affect us too if we don't know what we need to be doing. When we accept the consequences of it out of ignorance, or when we accept the consequences out of a lack of knowledge, or maybe sometimes out of fear, or sometimes out of doubt, doubting God's Word. Let me give you an example. When you hear that the flu is coming to the town and everybody has the flu, the hospitals are full, and all of a sudden you start subconsciously thinking, oh my goodness, I don't need the flu. I've got so much going right now. And you get frightened of it. You start getting into fear, subconsciously doubting God's word of protection or maybe forgetting about his protection or perhaps possibly not even knowing about the protection, lack of knowledge, then that immediately puts us in the enemy territory and we get hit with the sickness just exactly like the rest of the town or like the rest of the people. See, whatever is not of faith is sin. And we're going to find that doubt, doubting God's Word, fear, ignorance of the Word of God, discouragement, if we stay in discouragement, these are all sins and puts us in enemy territory. Jack was killing cactus one day and I was helping him. I got up so excited that day because we were going to get all that jumping cactus taken care of in the back patch. And we worked on it and I was excited all day long. And we had gotten so much done. The end of the day came and we were ready to go back up to the house and he discovered another whole pasture that was full of jumping cactus. And when he discovered that, I got so discouraged and I went home, I could hardly even crawl home. I was irritated that night, I went to bed discouraged, I was frustrated and I knew in my heart I didn't need to be doing that. But you know what, I woke up in the middle of the night and my throat was so sore and I took a horrible cold. And you know, I looked at that and I thought, I got discouraged, I took my eyes off of God, I took my faith off of God, and I put it right on the world, all these things that we were going to have to do to take care of it. And I opened the door. Now some people have asked about the man who was born blind, and Jesus said, neither his parents' sin nor his own sin caused the blindness. Okay, so we can know that that sickness did not come from personal sin. We know that it didn't come from the generational sin of his parents. If it was from a generational sin, it was definitely further up the ancestral line than, than his parents. But the one thing we do know from this story, we know that blindness is a curse. It certainly wasn't coming from God. And when Jesus healed the blindness, the Bible says it brought honor and glory to God. Always remember that it's the healing that brought the glory. It's not the sickness. It's not the curse that brings the glory to God. The curse never glorifies God. It's always the curse glorifying the enemy. And you say, okay, but what about those times when something bad happens and so much good comes out of it that surely that must have been coming from God? After all, maybe you're thinking, well, my whole family got saved from that tragedy. Or some people think, well, even if God didn't send the evil, maybe he had Satan send the evil because of all the good that was going to come out of it. Listen, don't allow yourself to start thinking that way because if you do, you're going to open up and you're going to start receiving some things from the enemy because you'll get into the deception of the enemy. Evil things that happen, calamities, they are never God's will ever. But God in his mercy, in Genesis 50 verse 20, we see an example of that where what was meant for evil, he turned and used it for good. We know that in Romans 8, 28, that God in his mercy, he will take after we've prayed and it says if we love him, we're called according to his purposes, he'll take those things that were meant for evil and turn and use them for good and work things together for good. But the evil, the sickness or calamity, the curse was never in God's will. 
Jesus paid a terribly high price to redeem us from the curse, and he's not going to turn around and put the curse back on us. And Jesus very plainly tells us that God does not use Satan to do his work. See, if God teamed up with Satan, it would be a house divided. And Jesus very plainly tells us in Matthew 12, verse 25, that any kingdom, any city, any house divided against itself will not stand. And that's why Jesus told them, he, they were accusing him of casting out spirits by Beelzebub. He said, if I cast out spirits by Beelzebub, then it would be a house divided. His kingdom wouldn't stand. Okay, by the same token, if Christ redeems us from the curse and then turned around and put the curse back on us or allowed Satan to put the curse back on us, it would be a house divided. It's not going to work that way. It doesn't work that way. In 1 John 3, verse 8, it tells us that the Son of Man appeared for this purpose. This is the purpose that the Son of Man appeared. What? To destroy the works of the devil. That could not say it more clearly. You need to circle that. If Christ came for the purpose of destroying the works of the devil, and the works of the devil are sin and sickness, poverty, the things that are under the curse. Okay, if he came to destroy those things, the works of the devil, then God his Father is never going to turn around and put the works of the devil back on us for any reason or allow Satan to put the works back on us. That would, again, would be a house divided. Okay, then where does sin come from? Okay, now stay with me. I'm, I just like just a little bit, but I want you to get this so much. I think it's going to be some puzzle pieces. We're going to find out in a hurry that everything in this world is governed by physical laws. And every one of us know that. We know that the natural laws in this world work. Gravity and all those natural laws work. But we're beginning just now to learn that there are spiritual laws that are just as sure and just as reliable as these physical laws. And they work. We're beginning to learn that these spiritual laws work every single time. Everything we speak out in faith, the actions that we have, the thoughts that we dwell on and take into our mind, the attitudes that we've adopted, all of these set spiritual laws into motion. And the spiritual laws are all summed up in the one stated in one law in Galatians 6 verse 7. In Galatians 6 verse 7, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that's exactly what he's going to reap. And we call that the law of sowing and reaping. Okay, now why do you think that Paul starts out by saying, don't be deceived? He's saying, hey, don't be fooled. This law works every single time. Works just like the natural laws work. And God's wanting us to start working the spiritual laws to our advantage. And you say, well, how does that work? Well, it's the law that governs the increase in the physical as well as the increase in the spiritual realm. See, the law of sowing and reaping is a natural law, but it's also a spiritual law. For example, in the natural, if a farmer plants one kernel of corn, he's not going to harvest back one kernel of corn. He's going to get a stalk of corn that has a lot of ears on it, and every ear is going to have many, many kernels on it. And that's the law working in the natural. But when we see that from one seed comes many seeds of the same kind, we're going to find that that same exact thing works in the spiritual realm. Because anytime we sow something, anytime we give something out, anytime we plant something in the spiritual realm, it's going to be multiplied back. It's not going to be given back to us, not just returned, but it's going to be multiplied back. Now, that's very easy to explain in the financial realm because let's say you have $100 and you give your tithe, your $10, your 10%. 
in the natural, we think, okay, I've got $90 left to live on. But that's not so. That doesn't line up with the Word of God. That $10 is literal seed that was sown in the spiritual realm, just as literal as that kernel of corn. And when it goes out as seed, that $10 seed literally is going to be multiplied back. You're not going to get $10 back. It's going to be multiplied back to you. Okay, the law of sowing and reaping now was set up by God to bring good always. But you know what? Many, many times what we've done is we've reversed it and we've planted evil things and an evil harvest has come back. And that's coming because of what we've sowed it's, or what someone has sowed, either personal sin, ancestral sin, or universal sin. And God warned us that these spiritual laws will backfire if they're operated in the negative. That's why he said, don't be deceived. It's going to work. But he didn't create them to backfire. If the man that invented penicillin or maybe any chemist that created a good drug and put it on the market to make people well, he put it there so that we can buy that drug, use it to prevent infection, to, to prevent death. But it was never intended to be used for evil. But if somebody decides to take that good medicine and abuse it, maybe take an overdose, if they abuse it anyway, the doctor or the chemist who discovered it, he didn't say, I'm going to plant an ingredient in that drug that if anybody decides to sin by misusing the drug, then that ingredient's going to zap him, it's going to do him harm, going to make him sick. No one would accuse the, the inventor of that drug of doing that. We know that it was never intended to hurt anybody, not even the abuser. And we know that it was the abuse itself of the drug that caused a problem to that person. And we wouldn't think about blaming the inventor of a drug for the bad repercussions when it's misused. And yet we do that over and over and over to God. We give God credit for allowing the bad repercussions. That good disease-fighting medicine is just a representation of God's good spiritual laws that he planted there to bring good to us. And I thought, you know, can we not at least give God as much credit and for being good and full of integrity as we give to the medical chemist? See, whatever is given out is seed and will be multiplied back. It doesn't matter whether it's love or whether it's bitterness or whether it's kindness or whether it's criticism. Whatever it is, it's going to be multiplied back in the harvest. Now, it may not come back overnight. It may not come back in a week. It may not come back in a month. It might not even come back in our lifetime. It might be in the lifetime of our children. But it will come. The time will come that it comes. And you know, God's told us in Psalm 18, verse 25, that even the law of sowing and reaping is going to affect the way we see God. And that's why many people have a bad understanding of God, a misunderstanding of his character. Because in Psalm 18, verse 25, it says, O Lord, with the kind-hearted you show yourself to be kind. Well, in other words, the kind-hearted are going to see God as a kind God. And then it goes on to say the blameless are going to see God as a blameless God. And the pure are going to see God as a pure God. And it says the perverted, though, will see God as a perverted God. Now, God's not perverted, but the perverted will see him that way. And that's exactly why many times people have misconceptions about the character of God because they're trying to make God fit into their mental image of him. They're trying to make God fit into their preconceived idea of God instead of letting God transform us into his way of thinking so that we can see the truth, so that we can know the truth about him. One man that we knew personally, 
he told us, he said, every married man on the face of God's green earth looks at women to lust. And I thought, I can't believe he said that. And all of a sudden, I realized why. See, he was operating in a spirit of lust. Therefore, he saw every other man that way. He saw every man through his eyes. But you know what? We do the same thing too many times with God. We see God through our unrenewed mind, or we see his character through maybe something we've just been told. And when we finally understand the principle of sowing and reaping, the character of God will never be misunderstood again. No, we'll never be able to come to a place where we're thinking that God's sending the evil or permitting the evil. When we know that sickness is not coming from God ever, and anointing's gonna rise up on the inside of us, and it's going to literally drive sickness out, and it's going to cause us to wanna to get up and lay hands on the sick every time we see somebody that's sick, because we're going to know beyond a shadow of a doubt what the character of God is, what the will of God is. We're never going to think that God's putting it or permitting it, and it's gonna cause the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead to rise up on the inside of us, and we're gonna look for people, not only to get them saved, but look for people to, to get them healed and to get them set free from the harassment of the enemy, from the things that, that are in this earth. And we're going to realize there's this umbrella that God put there because he loves us and because he wants us under it. He's never wanted us out in enemy territory. Every word that he's given us in this book is for our survival, it says, and for our benefit. And when we know that, then everything we do, everything we say, every step we make is going to be to put that picture of God through Christ Jesus into the hearts and lives of people everywhere we go. Father, I thank you that you are a good God. I thank you, Father, that you gave the most precious gift that you could possibly have given through your son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us from the curse, to legally buy us back. And Father, forgive us. Forgive us when we've given you credit for horrible things that have happened to us or given you credit for thinking that you gave Satan permission to do it. Forgive us, Father. Help us, Father, to rise up and look where you told us to look. Lord, you told us to look at, at your son and hear him. Father, help us to look at the life of Jesus. Help us, Lord, to allow Jesus to form every understanding in our heart about you. And then help us to take that message, Father, and to set other people free freely as we've been given, that we might freely give. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Please share this teaching with anyone you think it would minister to. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org.